George Washington's birthday to you. Happy George Washington. Bring it up there, please. <laughs> Happy I wish I had a, uh, a copy of a tape. Uh, hello. Gee, we got a heck of a home here today. Uh, yeah. Did, you, did that come on the air? <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh, man. Hello, hello. Gee, what a wild home here in here today. I know what's the matter. Well, okay. Hey, you know what I'd like to have? This is Washington's birthday, you know? I wish I had that tape. We have a tape somewhere here of a show that we did at the Limelight a couple of years back, and which, uh, you know, it was taped. It was take, taken off the air. It was uh, not a tape show, but it was a live show, which was taped off the air. And the entire audience, there was like 300 people in there. It was on George Washington's birthday that I did this show, and I wonder how many of you remembered who might have been listening to it. We got a fantastic response on it, all kinds of letters, in which the entire audience sang, Happy Birthday, Dear George. Happy birthday, dear Georgie. Happy birthday, dear George Washington. Happy birthday to you. And it was just a really inspiring. Uh, <laughs> they, did you hear that, uh, Herb, that night? Yeah, they were all singing. There was about 300 people down there singing it out, man. And, uh, you know, I don't think George Washington's had a better birthday uh, than that, really, in a long time. It, uh, you know, so people get so pompous about uh, George Washington. you got to realize it was his birthday. And, uh, and, you know, we think of these great men, uh, their birthday is somehow a state occasion, and it probably is to most of us. But can you imagine George after a hard day at the White House or a hard day out uh, fighting uh, General Brandywine, and he comes home and, and he's all tired, you know, and he takes his wig off. I wonder how Washington looked without his wig. I've never seen a picture of him without his wig. Have you? You always see George Washington with a wig on. And I just wonder how he looked without that thing. Uh, yeah. Well, no, no. He, they, I've read descriptions of his hair. Did you read description? It's supposed to have been reddish, sandy colored. And uh, a large amount of it. it often they said that he had, he, had a, he had a great shock of reddish, sandy hair. And I suspect if you ever saw... A picture of Washington without the head thing, you know, without the without the wig on, he wouldn't even look like Washington. People wouldn't accept that. And I'd like to see Washington uh, without his teeth in. You know, he he wore these wooden teeth. <laughs> yeah, he had wooden false teeth. So you never see pictures of Washington smiling. I mean, he had a set of teeth that were made out of solid, polished walnut, which uh, you know it must have been a pretty exciting thing to see. And he <laughs> he smiles. But uh, nevertheless, he did have, you know, and uh, have you ever seen his teeth? Well, you know, his teeth are preserved. Oh, yes, there, there are five sets of George Washington teeth around that if you want to see his teeth, they're, they're in, a, in a museum. That they have his teeth and they have stuff that Washington had, like, uh, you know. In fact, there's even a, a uniform in the Smithsonian Institute, in case you're curious. There is a uniform that was owned and worn by General Washington. I wonder how many of you can tell me what General Washington's rank is now. Yeah, on the Army lists, the all-time... You know, when you become a, uh, a commissioned officer, uh, the, I think it's only general officers. I'm not sure about that. But you remain that no matter what. In other words, even after a man is dead, the rank is still valid. He's still 
considered a general, and at the same time, uh, even if you're in civilian life, when a general leaves the army and retires, he remains a general. He's 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 never he doesn't quit it. In other words, you don't you don't stop being a general. You just stop being active. That's about it. But he's always a general. What is General Washington's rank? Was he a brigadier general? Was he a major general? Was he a lieutenant general? A three-star general, in other words? Was he a full general, which is a four-star general? Or was he a general of the armies, which is a rank? And uh, a very special one. That's the one where, where the five stars are worn in a circle. You've seen the general of the army, uh, say, Eisenhower was a general of the army. Uh, what? So was MacArthur, a general. Who? Bradley, yes. Bradley is alive and, of course, remains a general of the army. Now, uh, that's a very rare rank. Uh, you, you know why that rank was created, in case any of you are you, curious about that? I don't know how I got into the subject of ranks here, but uh, I read something about that, that the reason that that rank was created was because during World War II, when uh, our generals, like, say, Eisenhower, had to deal on an equal basis with generals of other countries, you know, officers, high-ranking officers, there is a rank which is in European armies generally, particularly the Russian army, of field marshal. Well, that is above a general. A field marshal is a rank that stands, it's, it's like the highest the rank of all. It's the field marshal. There was another rank which was higher than all the other ranks. <laughs> And, and who do you who held the highest known rank in any arm? Yeah, you didn't. And even if you read about him, you didn't. Well, I'll tell you who it was. It was Goering. Goering, uh, he had a rank called Reichs Marshal, Grand Reichs Marshal, which was a rank, a special rank created for Goering, so that he could be above the other, you know, the marshals in the army, the the, the German marshals. So he was even above that. And he had a special rank. And, uh, of course, uh, it's, it's the only one guy ever held it. But in the case of uh, Washington, what was, in fact, one of the curious things about Washington, now that we're doing a show on Washington, one of the curious things about Washington, just within a few years back, just a few years ago, not very long ago, like four or five, six years ago, General Washington was promoted. Did you know that? That's right. He was given a, a higher permanent rank than the rank at which he, he in fact, held at the time he died. So what is General Washington's current rank? What was Washington's rank during the time when he was, uh, when he was leading the uh, revolutionary forces in America? What was that? Yes, a lieutenant general actually, was what the rank was that he held. And, uh, <laughs> and what was he when the war began? And he was not a general. No. In fact, uh, there were a lot of interesting things about that time. Uh, where had combat experience been? He had been in combat before, you know. And in what war? What was his rank in the French and Indian Wars? His final rank? 
That is correct. You're right. He was a colonel, and uh, he was he was uh, he was known as a tactician and a, and a, uh, a, a brilliant leader of tactical forces. <laughs> he later proved that was true. Now, uh, when when I don't know how how I got into all this stuff, but now when when the who designed? I'll ask you questions that are really interesting to me. The general Washington was a general. What was the the? Have you ever seen pictures of the uniform of the commissioned officer of that period? All right. What was the color of the of the coat? What we call the blouse. What was it? Was it, now you know today. If if I were to say to you, well, what is the the color of a dress uniform? Would say. Of, a, of an army officer, you'd know what that is. And if I said a navy officer, you'd know what that is, you'd say, well, it's a dark navy blue, correct? You would not say green or yellow. Well, in the case of the commissioned officer of that period, what did he wear? Well, all right, I'll give you... Why do I know all this stuff? And none of you know it. You went through the same schooling I did, and don't come and say that was my time. Now, come on, you're copping out. This is our history. Well, all right, I'll tell you. They wore buff, beige, and powder blue. Now, think back on that. You've seen the beige uh, lapels and the blue coat. You've seen that. And the tricorn hat, the tri tricorner hat. The commissioned officer wore a different type of braiding on his hat, as a matter of fact. And he wore a cockade, a separate type of of uh, insignia on the hat, which showed his commission, that he was a commissioned officer. Uh, and, uh, now, in that time, of course, it was possible to buy a rank. You could buy a, a, a commission. If you, if you had enough uh, money and you were a landowner and so forth, you could raise your own regiment. And, and you would, of course, naturally be the colonel of that regiment. You would, you would raise the regiment... And it was you. It would then be known as, a, uh, as a, say, uh, for example, it would be a Lambert's Irregulars, and uh, you would be the, the colonel of the of Lambert's Irregulars. Uh, perhaps it would generally be called a Lambert's uh, Light Infantry. Would be a better. Now, what is light infantry? Of course, light infantry is is generally foot soldiers that have light armament. By light armament, they they don't carry heavy artillery with them. So you you are you all. On the other hand, you could say uh, Lambert's uh, Lambert's uh, artillery squadron, Lambert's uh, <laughs> battery. It would be a battery in that case. It wouldn't be a squadron. What what comes in squadrons in those days? What was a squadron? Or oh, didn't you know they had squadrons then? Well, of course, a squadron was cavalry. Uh, a squadron, and so <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is strange esoteric, isn't it? And and uh, and what was what was a uh, what was a uh, there was a civilian attached to most big outfits, and uh, his job was was to secure supplies for that outfit. In other words, he was like a civilian go-between between people who were selling eggs and meat, and the army. What was his? What did they call him? He had a name. You're 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 close, but not quite. Now, I'll give you another clue. At, at about the same time, 
there was a lot of action going on in Europe. I mean, there were wars being fought, and uh, things were going on at the same time, although this was uh, really not quite the same time. But a very, very famous writer was had that as a job with Napoleon. He traveled with Napoleon's army to Waterloo, <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, the fiasco that uh, involved there. I think he was also with Napoleon in the Moscow, and when they were in the final defeat, and he uh, he was a his job was as that he he was working as a to uh, as a civilian, but it's a quasi uh, military quasi civilian role, and he would get supplies for the army. It was his job. Who was that writer? And what did he write? And he remained a Napoleon fan to the end of his days. Who was he? Okay, have you ever heard the name Bile, Henri Bile, better known as Stando? All right, he was... <laughs> what? Uh, how, how do I get it? This is W.O.R. New York. It's all silly stuff. I have here a letter that says, uh, I can no longer resist Shepard's incredible salesmanship. I've got to have a bird. <laughs> terrible to fall into the bird uh, the bird syndrome but if you don't know anything about these birds shepherd's incredible salesmanship ain't going to sell you one but uh they're beautiful they're they're 16 inches across and they were a sensation in europe you know last year it's the first time they've really been in this country and they are an ornithopter they actually fly like a real bird you just wind up the things got a little crank in the back and she takes off comes with uh separate uh, special rubber bands in case you break one and they're just great they have two colors, yellow and red, and they're only three ninety-eight. And I think for that money, they're probably one of the greatest toys around. Certainly, the greatest flying bird around. So, if you'd like to order one, just send three ninety-eight, and that'll be postage paid. And New York State residents add the tax to Flying Birds. Make your check or money order to Flying Birds, Department S, Post Office Box nineteen oh nine, Grand Central Station, New York, New York. That's Post Office Box 1909, Department S, Flying Birds, and they are guaranteed to fly. And that's, uh, you know, more than you are. Okay, we have the book fine people with us here tonight. And uh, the only way, they say, to judge book clubs is by the list of titles. Well, that's logical. The mass book clubs feature books that appeal to the masses, and the book fine club seeks out only the best of contemporary fiction and nonfiction like The Game of the Foxes, Uncommon Sense, Memoirs of Hope by Charles de Gaulle, and so forth. So uh, if you'd like to join the club, you're, they're putting on special inducements now. They'll send you for only $1 plus postage and handling two extraordinary books that will cost about $15 at bookstores, Jean-Francois Ravel's Without Marks or Jesus and Lawyer F. Lee Bailey's The Defense Never Rests. That's a dollar apiece if you join the club, of course. So call and find out about it. It's TN71441. And as a BookFind member, you're obliged to purchase just two more books in a whole year. Or send your name and address, no money, to BookFind, WOR, New York. BookFind, WOR, New York. But, uh, but Washington fascinates me because and has had a great impact on this country. You know, there's still a large amount of argument. And uh, and since this is Washington's birthday, we might as well talk about some of these things. You know, the word revolution is used very loosely. Uh, if you look up the, the word to find that it doesn't necessarily jive with what you think of as the revolution, American Revolution. 
And uh, the, the term rebellion is a term which is more properly applied. And so there's been a lot of argument whether that was actually, in fact, a revolution. Now, the big difference, of course, why they do say this, is that a revolution is, is, it really means, in general, I mean, in, in practical terms, when a people overthrows their own government. In other words, when, when Castro, it was a proper revolution, say, when Castro because it was, a, a, uh, it was the case of a Cuban overthrowing a Cuban. And it was a case of the Cuban people throwing out one group of Cubans to replace them with another. But in the case of the American situation, you had a, a people who had grown in the preceding 150 years and had become a separate entity. They were now Americans. They were no longer Englishmen living in America, but they were governed by another country. Not by themselves, but by another country. They were governed by George III, who was not an American, did not live in America, and uh, they were governed by Parliament, and in fact, it was more properly a rebellion. They rebelled against foreign rule. So to call it a revolution, many people will argue that was not a revolution. At no point was it a revolution. Now, had, ten years afterwards, after George Washington was president, had a group of people then, Americans, we'll say, got together and thrown that entire government out, kicked out Washington, that would have been a revolution. Now, you see the difference. It's always referred to as a revolution, and yet, uh, and on the other hand, we don't recognize it as such when, uh, when you take, uh, take the war between the states, the Civil War, when they talk about that. Now, uh, what was that? Well, it was a rebellion. These, these people, uh, you know, they claimed it was a rebellion. In other words, they, they felt that they were being governed by alien forces, they, they, uh, that, that here they were governed by the North. They were governed by the federal, the federal uh, government. And they, they then cut themselves off from the federal government, proclaimed that they were now another country. And in fact, that's what they were at the time. The Confederate States of America was another country. Or at least they proclaimed themselves that. At that point, then, they said that they are now rebelling against foreign rule. At which point... Uh, <laughs> So these are all these are all interesting. You never hear this stuff discussed, do you? Really, what? And uh, I, I remember there was a there was a teacher I once had who was a was a Washington scholar. This was a a guy who taught American history in college, and his whole field was was uh, based on that study, the study of of uh, what led up to the American uh, split from England, what led up to the whole development of the, the that that group of people. And, of course, there's a lot of misinformation about them. And that uh, we tend to think of these people as very elegant. Uh, uh, the, the, you know, we think of Washington and these people as really elegant people. And as a matter of fact, Washington was a remarkably tough physical specimen. In fact, he was, he was recognized among all the people who knew him. Uh, one of the reasons that he was so generally respected among his troops was that he was a tough son of a gun. He was a hard man. <laughs> I mean, physically hard. And, and uh, he... He uh, he was known for his his uh, physical, and he drank wine like like it was going out of style. He was he loved wine. Now what wine did he drink? What kind of wine did did Washington drink? A specific type of wine, and he was famous for this. He was as famous for this during his day as uh, Grant later in his career became famous. Not that Washington was a drunk, not at all, but Washington. And in those days, wine was considered part of your food. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a general or a gentleman drank wine. 
and it was not not a matter of uh, being. Of course, the, the attitude towards drinking has changed a great deal in uh, you know since uh, those days. And today, there was a, at a period in time in the in the in the uh, Victorian days, and maybe even a little earlier, drinking began to be looked upon with moral attitudes, and that it became all mixed up with good and bad and evil. And so finally, by the time uh, we reached the 20th century, uh, people used to think of drinking as a good or bad thing in the organization. But in those days, drinking was like part of your part of a, the makeup of a person. You just drank the way you'd eat meat. Now there was reasons for this too. Uh, physical reasons. For one thing, the water supplies in many places were almost impossible. I mean, you could get your you die from drinking water. They didn't have the kind of of uh, pure water things that we have. Water purification plants. So when people would travel, if a guy traveled and he he was drinking from an alien well, he didn't know about it. In many cases, he would have to drink from a stream or out of a well or something. Could easily kill him. Uh, not because of pollution. They had pollution then, you know. Uh, animals uh, living in streams and drinking out of streams and so forth and, and drainage one thing and another in places. So the only safe thing to do is drink wine. And guys did drink wine. In fact, all the troops of that time were given a rum and a wine ration wherever they were. That was a very necessary part of what they did. Now, what did what was the wine that he drank? Curious little bit of esoterica. Well, what kind of wine do you think Washington would drink? Now, just think about that for a minute. I'll give you a clue. It was not a native wine. Huh? No, it was not French either. Because uh, that would have been a pretty tough proposition. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you the answer. It was Madeira. You ever hear of Madeira? Well, George Washington drank elegant Madeira, and wherever he went, his casks of Madeira would accompany him. <laughs> And uh, and so you know, thinking of Washington, you got to think of a human being, you know, that sat around and drank drank Madeira wine, and uh, and had had his meals and 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 lived uh, what would be by today's standards a very primitive life. Uh, he lived uh, he lived a very primitive life. It was mostly cold. Those people lived a lot of their lives were spent mostly in cold weather. In fact, I I remember seeing uh, it was cold all the time. Uh, very, very, if, if you've ever done any camping, you realize how, how surprising it is that in the middle of the summer you can go to a place and, and by 2 o'clock in the morning you're freezing. It would really surprise you. So when you live the kind of life that these people live, they were cold a good part of the time. And when they weren't cold, they were really roasting because most of their clothing was based on the cold, which was really the enemy. So I, I, uh, I went... I, one time I remember being in the Smithsonian Institute and looking at uh, at the uniforms. Washington's One of Washington's uniforms is actually there, the real thing. And, uh, and it's, first of all, he's pretty big, you know. Washington was not a little guy. He was big, muscular, broad shoulders, tough, and he wore this uniform. And the uniform that they had on display there, the first thing that knocked me, you know, it got me, was how heavy it is. It's really heavy material. It's, it's very thick, heavy material. And naturally, because it was a very cold world, these, the, the, the clothing you wore was the real source of the warmth you lived in. So there was not much artificial warmth around anywhere. And even in the houses where, say, it was a George Washington slept here, and you go to a place like Valley Forge, and there's George Washington's... Uh, 
uh, headquarters is still there, you know, at one point when he was at Valley Forge. Well, these places were heated by a little tiny fire in the corner. And generally the heat was not to heat the place, but to light it. It was, uh, it was considered a prime source of light because the heat was ridiculous because they were made out of cold stone and the stone would absorb the, the uh, clammy coldness outside. So they lived a very cold life generally. So the uniforms are very thick and heavy. And uh, their whole world was based on thick, heavy clothing. Now, that's one of the other reason why they drank a lot of wine, because wine uh, provides a you know, tremendous source of energy, and it warms you up. Or at least that's what they felt. Now, uh, in the, now, have you thought of the name of the type of guy that provided equipment and supplies for them? Now, I'll ask you a question. Come on, I'll, I'll go back to that. All right, you can look it up in your dictionary. Have you ever heard the word subtler? S-U-T-L-E-R? All right, look it up. <laughs> you, you'll find... And, and they also played a great role in, in the, the, the Civil War, that they would travel with the troops, and they were civilians who would go out and, and uh, forage around, and they would buy stuff from the local people and uh, whatever they had to do, and they were like the go-between between the army and the market. And a sutler, S-U-T-L-E-R, a provider of provisions. Uh, sometimes it would be called a provisioner, but that was later. Uh, the, the word sutler is one of those words, you know, a lot of words drop out of the language that had a real meaning at one time, and they, they dropped out. Do you know that the company that makes the tea that was spilled at the Boston Tea Party still makes that same tea? Do you know that you can buy the tea that was thrown into Boston Harbor. Exactly the same mix. The same blend of tea made by the same company. It was a British company. And uh, and you know that they filed a claim with the British government when uh, their tea was thrown overboard. Uh, the, the tea came into the country. Of course, this was a strike out, a lashing out against taxes that were, inv were imposed on, on various commodities that people needed. Tea was an important commodity at the time. So the reason they picked on tea to throw out was because the shipment of tea had come into the harbor, and they just threw it overboard to show that they were defying the... It was like a strike, you see, defying the British taxation system and all, and that they weren't going to pay those high taxes. And so they just, without any representation in Congress, is what it really be, in, in Parliament, really. So they just threw the tea overboard, and the company that lost all that tea then lodged a complaint with the British government. They wanted dough for that tea. They claimed that they owned the tea, which they did, and uh, they were just merely involved in commerce. And uh, because the British government uh, let this happen, they wanted them to be they wanted to be reimbursed. Now the question I'm about to ask: Were they ever reimbursed for that tea? Now, I'll ask you another esoteric question: What was the name of the tea company that made that tea? <laughs> Where do I pick up this junk? You know, it bothers me sometimes that my head is filled with trivia like that. And if you think I'm working off a notebook here or something, I'm not. I'm just this is just stuff that comes out that I, I've from time to time read. And it, there was a, there was another thing too about about that period uh, that was interesting. In those days, when when the troops traveled, when they traveled around, like the army at Valley Forge and so forth. 
they they didn't. It was not like today when when the army is a separate thing from the civilian world. And in the case of most of those armies, that especially the officers, in fact, almost exclusively the officers, their whole their whole menage would travel quite often with them. Uh, in other words, their wives and often their children. So, so uh, the the it was very common in those days. If you've ever read any of the diaries of of Washington, you know there are some that remain. That uh, Martha Washington and the whole crowd would come and they would stay there. They would be right there at Valley Forge or wherever they're. In fact, quite often where they would be fighting a battle off on the hillside would be the whole damn crowd and the tents and everything else. The families are all there, and uh, they would just travel and live like that. And uh, they would travel back and forth. Another thing too that was different uh, in those days was, of course, that was that they had a, f- a formality, which uh, goes back to many, many centuries ago. Which is, uh, which is, by the way, springing up now again in uh, Vietnam, and that is, traveling with the army, there was always a large gaggle of ladies of easy virtue that were not only accepted but were condoned by the army, and it was a, a, a almost a, it was a part of the traveling army. That's where, of course, the term camp followers came about, and uh, they would they would set up their their establishment, and often it was they were inspected by army officers, you know, uh, medical officers, and it was maintained by the army. The whole thing. They, so they would and they would have two different establishments: one for officers, and one for enlisted men. And wherever they would travel, they would they would travel that way, and that was very much part of the Revolutionary War uh, at that time. This is much, not much of this do you read in history books. But uh, this, is, <laughs> this happened to have been a fact of the war and a fact of the time. Now, there was another thing, too, at that time that uh, is not often discussed, really, and that is that there was a great deal of dissension in the country over whether or not we should split from England. It was not a simple matter of uh, all these people fighting against England and everybody cheering and going off. Not at all. As a matter of fact, there was great, great dissension, and according to some uh, writers on the subject, that there were as many people, if not more, who wanted to remain in the English Empire as wanted to get out of it. Now, this is not often, really. It's glancingly referred to in history books often, but it was not a simple matter that there were a lot who were for. There were the loyals, the Tories, the Whigs, there were a lot for the British, a lot against. And uh, it was not a popular movement, not, not certainly not unanimous by any means. Now, another thing that, that was interesting about it was that due to the fact that this was true, that certain areas would remain basically loyalist. In other words, uh, often when the American army, what was then the American army, would be working in an area, they would be working in enemy country, right in America. Now, I'm not talking about country that was occupied by the British, but just uh, other Americans. They would be sniped at and would would be fought. When they arrived in, and one of the Jersey town, what Jersey town across the river, not far from here, not far from New York, was a fame, would never did, never did uh, get into the revolution, was against it, and in fact was a bastion of pro-British sentiment on the wrong side of the war. That is, uh, as far as at least the final results were concerned. And there are several towns that were like that, and one famous town right here in this area that was anti-American all the way. <laughs> and when the American troops were bivouacked in that area, and there was a battle fought in that area, they also had to fight the civilians of that area who 
quite often were, were underground workers for the British and, in fact, uh, did great material and uh, psychological damage to the Americans in the area. That is, the fighting Americans in the area, where they, were, they found themselves fighting not only... It was like in Vietnam. Not only did they find themselves fighting the British Army, but they were fighting the, the civilians around there, too, and were often sniped at and uh, killed by fellow Americans. Now, now who, what, what town was that? Famous town. Now, uh, this, this uh, whole business of the campfires, if you notice, if you follow Vietnam, just recently the Army has decided that all these girls that hang, used to hang around outside of the big Army bases are now officially condoned by the Army, and they're allowed even to come into the barracks. Did you read that? Yes. That's right. Well, that was very true during the Revolutionary days, which shows in a way that we're going back to a kind of morality. We're, 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 we're going into a morality which was very common at the an earlier period in our history. We went through a period of extreme, uh, almost, you might say, Victorian, uh, uh, I suppose you could say, Victorian uh, intolerance for many things, and now we're slipping back. In fact, uh, for a long time, it was illegal to serve any kind of alcoholic beverages on any military installation, the Navy, the Army, and so forth. You probably know that. Uh, well, now that's changed. Now, now uh, it's all changed, and and they even in the mess now in the army in many places. I I don't know whether it's general now, but I know in many areas, beer is served with the mess. You can get beer in the mess hall, which is exactly the way it was back in the days of George Washington. That in the days of Washington, uh, it would have been unthinkable for a for a soldier to be asked to sit down and have his meal without a tot of rum which was provided by the army, or his, his, uh, his uh, ale. Well, ale was more common. And uh, so <laughs> now uh, you know that many of the drinks that, that uh, are drunk, mixed drinks, go back to various armies. You know that there's a, there's a, there's a drink which is drunk uh, that is, is, is part, was drunk as a mixed drink at the time of uh, George Washington and was drunk at, at officers' parties. Have, have you ever run into that drink? Have you ever heard of artillery punch? Well, artillery punch was a Revolutionary War drink, and, uh, and it came out of that war and, in fact, was drunk. The reason they call it artillery punch, because in those days the artillery was the, uh, was the branch of the service that had the biggest kick. <laughs> in other words, it was heavy. It was heavy stuff. So when a guy drank this punch, it was called artillery punch because it could flatten you. Uh, and, and and artillery punch was a Revolutionary War drink. Have you ever heard of a Stonewall? Well, a Stonewall is a drink that came out of the Civil War. There's of course Stonewall Jackson. Now, what is the Stonewall? Do you know what a Stonewall is? I'll tell you how to make it. If you, if you're curious, you can make it out there, and it's a great drink. You really would like it. A lot of these drinks have slipped into history, and uh, it's, a sa it's a shame because they're great drinks. If you go into a bar and order a Stonewall, he won't know what you're talking about. But here's what a Stonewall is. You curious what a Stonewall is? And it's an excellent drink. Uh, take a large glass, what would be like a goblet. In fact, you can even, uh, in a tall drink glass, but generally it's served in a goblet, you know, one of these round glasses. I'm not talking about a great big brandy snifter, but a goblet, you know, round, what would be a big round drink. <laughs> and uh, and put in this goblet one jigger 
or if you like it a little stronger, maybe a jigger and a half or even two, one jigger or a jigger and a half of good bourbon. That uh, In those days, uh, that was an American whiskey. It was, it, was, it was classic whiskey. Put a jigger of bourbon in it and then fill the rest of the glass up with ice-cold apple cider and stir it. If you like, you can even put a piece of uh, cinnamon or something in there, but serve it. It's cold. You see, it's not a hot drink. You serve it cold with the apple cider over the bourbon, and it's a fantastic drink. It really is a good drink. Now, that was Stonewall Jackson's favorite drink, and uh, it became known as a Stonewall because, you know, it became a popular drink to drink, and, and these guys would walk around and, uh, in fact, Stonewall Jackson was famous for carrying, uh, he would carry a pre-mixed, almost like these Hue-Blind drinks, and he would have a, he would have a, a, a cask of, uh, of uh, his drink that he drank, which was a, a mixture of, as I said, a mixture of apple cider and bourbon, and that made a real zinger. Now, uh, we'll ask you another one. See, all these different wars produce different drinks. Have you ever heard of a, uh, uh, one of the most famous drinks, uh, have you ever heard of a French 75? Well, a French 75 was invented by one man. It's a fact. One man, and they can even trace it almost to the day he invented it. It was out of World War I, and he was a famous flyer who was also very inventive in flying. In fact, he was so inventive as a flyer that there is a classical maneuver, which is still performed by flyers, named after him. He created this maneuver. Lufberry. The Lufberry turn. He's an American. He was from Connecticut, and he flew with the French. And Raoul Lufberry. It sounds like a French name. Actually, he was an American. And Lufberry was a famous ace, and uh, he was also American. And Americans didn't dig wine very much. They were not wine drinkers. They liked stronger drinks. So he got over into France, and he found that they were giving him this wine all the time. So the 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 only thing he could do with the wine, which they had plenty of, was to mix something else with it to give it a little pizzazz. So Raoul Lufberry invented the French 75, which consists of a drink made up of one jigger or more, maybe two, one jigger of cognac over which is poured an entire glass, a tall glass. You just fill up this glass with ice-cold champagne. Mix that, and, and the reason they called that a French 75 was how deadly it is. That is a drink that is one of the most sneaky drinks because it tastes good. It's champagne. You know, it tastes great. And it's, it, the French 75 was a famous weapon because it was silent, that guys would get killed by a French 75 and not hear the shell coming. It was a high-velocity weapon. <laughs> you know, bam, they're gone. So the French 75 would knock you right on your you-know-what without any warning. Drinking a French 75, next thing you know, it's morning, and uh, they're pouring water over your head, and you didn't know what happened. So uh, this is all part of that, that whole world. And I notice, you know, the, the world, uh, why I'm reminded of Washington about that is that very few people ever talk about the kind of life that a guy like Washington must have lived. Uh, I mean, the daily life. Uh, the problems which you don't even think about. The, the problems of laundry. Uh, the problems of, of what kind of food he had. When they'd get a cold, what would they do? They'd get a tremendous cold. Well, you know what? They had a remedy for colds in those days. <laughs> <laughs> Are you curious what they did? They mixed gunpowder with rum. <laughs> you drink a couple of shots of that, and the top of your head flies off, and you ain't got a cold because your sinuses have been blown out of your head. But uh, 
this is a, the, the daily life always fascinates me. And, and uh, up in New England, one of the things I, I love about New England is that is a lot of the remnants of that kind of life still persist in many parts of the country. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's still up there. You can just feel it up there. And, and yes, uh, areas around Boston. And, you know, one of the, uh, one of the forts that uh, was used, just a fortification. It's, just, it's, it's a, kind of a sad scene. There's a little mound of grass and it's a fortification that was manned by Washington in Boston right after the beginning of the Revolutionary War. And it's still there, but it's among a, a whole lot of freight loading yards. And there's all kinds of yards around where they... And there's a factory right next to it that makes potato chips. <laughs> and there it is, sitting there in the middle of all that. And uh, the, the, the actual life of a guy like Washington, the daily life, is... is is so overshadowed by the political and the historical context in which he's been placed that it's very hard to know what it must have been like. Can you imagine walking in and you're a corporal and uh, you've got a message from, from uh, say, uh, Benedict Arnold, uh, Major General Benedict Arnold, and you're coming in with a, with a, uh, a message and you're, you're brought into uh, General Washington's headquarters and you hand him this message. I wonder what he, what he, what his voice sounded like, what he talked like. I mean, uh, what, what kind of a personality did he smile? What did he do? You know, was he, was uh, these, these are, these are things which are, are generally lost. I was talking to a guy, as a matter of fact, you know, talk about these great figures whose presence historically overpowers their their daily life. I was talking to a guy one time who had been on the staff. Uh, when he was a real young guy, he was like 17, he had been working, he was in the office of General Pershing. You always think of Pershing as somebody right out of, or straight out of history books, you know. <laughs> you know and, and he said, he says it was fascinating how the daily life of Pershing, and he, he was always mad because his shirts were never right. You never think of a guy like that, constantly getting mad at the laundry. The, the shirts were always coming back with with wrinkles on the cuffs and stuff like this. He was always yelling for about an hour after his laundry got back. And he was always involved, you see, because he was taking the shirts to the laundry and back. And, <laughs> and there must have been some guy who, who was constantly washing the mugs that uh, Washington used and drinking his Madeira, you know, his memoirs. <laughs>